With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at, at First, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network. Available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Best of the Doug Gottlieb Show podcast. Be sure to catch us live every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, that's 12 to 3 Pacific, on Fox Sports Radio. Find your local station for the Doug Gottlieb Show at foxsportsradio.com or stream us live every day on the iHeartRadio app by searching FSR. This is the best of the Doug Gottlieb Show on Fox Sports Radio. Welcome in on a Thursday, getting you set for week seven of the National Football League. A huge debut in the purple and gold tonight in Portland. But we start off with controversy, Bucky. Controversy in Major League <laughs> Baseball. Red Sox up 3-1 on the Houston Astros, and they aren't happy in Texas today. No, they aren't happy, and they, they shouldn't be happy because they had a rule that kind of went against them. Oh. And I can't imagine I can't imagine being an Astros fan today and trying to figure out how my team, my favorite team, lost a game that seemed like it was trending their way. The Houston Astros last night in the bottom of the first inning had a runner on base when Jose Altuve came to the plate down to nothing. I would love to play the highlight for you, but here's the fact of the matter. The whole situation took five minutes to sort out. Like It was a long five minutes. Altuve's home run goes into the stands. Mookie bets of the Boston Red Sox, jumps up from his right field position, puts his glove up into the stand. The ball is ricochets off of his glove after fans closed Mookie Betts' glove. In short, umpire Joe West calls interference, calling 
Jose Altuve out, but the rule in Major League Baseball states that if the ball has crossed the yellow line and is into the stands, then there is no interference. Mm. Interference can only happen if a fan reaches over that yellow line or onto the field of play, and that's not what happened last night, Bucky. And the interpretation of what the rule was, as you said, was not delivered last night. You may believe it. Many Astros fans believe it. Heck, Astros manager A.J. Hinch believes they got the call wrong last night. A.J., what did you think of... The call on Jose Altuve's... <laughs> what do you think I thought? What, what, what did, what did, what did I see? I saw fan interference. I've had this a couple times, or we have as a team, and they deemed the fan reached over into the field of play and interfered with bets. And Jose pays the biggest price because the trajectory of the ball looked like it was going to leave the ballpark. But we assume, and you can assume a lot with Mookie because he's an incredible athlete, we assume he's going to make this spectacular catch, jumping as high as he can into the, into the crowd. I asked for a review, and obviously they're going to give it to us. They reviewed it and came back with the same outcome. So, once the fan reaches in, you know, past that line of the fence, they're—I mean, we're going to penalize hitters. And last night, the question was: Did the fan actually cross that yellow line? Thanks to MLB Network as well for the uh, the AJ Hinch sound we've got there. But that's that's the question, Bucky. And this is this is where I sit on it because it was so easy last night to yell at Joe West for making the call for Joe West being Joe West has been umpiring games in major league baseball for 40 years. He was on the field when Nolan Ryan threw his fifth, no hitter. Okay. That's the true story. He was, he was one of the umpires in that game, but it's easy to pile on. And the rule wasn't interpreted last night, the way that it should have been in the rule book, but I'm fine with that. I actually think Mookie Betts makes that play and Jose Altuve is out. The only thing that would have been affected is if the runner on first advances to second base. I actually, the, the rule was was not interpreted last night, and I'm actually fine with it today. I have no problems with it. No, well, I, I really don't have problems with it because it happened so early in the game that I don't know how big of a real impact it had on the outcome. Uh, yes, you can say you take two two runs off the board. Um, maybe they lost the by energy, two. Yeah. <laughs> maybe the energy that was in the stadium. However, there were so many other plays that happened within the course of the game that we really don't know. I do understand the manager's concern because it didn't look like the fan was necessarily reaching over the line and all of that is subject to interpretation. But I think at some point you want to keep the fans away from the game. You want to keep them out of the mix. You don't want them to have an impact, particularly in a championship series when everything is tightly contested. You would like to be able to remove the fans and their interactions with the game and with the players to prevent this kind of stuff from happening. I understand that it didn't follow with the rule, but to your to your point, think about this. The baseball rules are stating that it's okay for a fan to close a player's glove to allow them to not catch a fly ball. Like that's what the the, the rule isn't saying that, but that's what it's saying. And that's what's so amazing to me and why the rule is so awful. Listen, Joe West isn't awful. He may be for other reasons, but last night he wasn't awful. The call wasn't awful. The replay wasn't awful. I'm sorry, it wasn't. The rule stinks. And Mookie Betts was going to make that catch. He was going to. I'm sorry, it would have been a magnificent catch. And you could say, well, it would have been difficult. No, he was on his way to making the catch until the fan closed his glove, and then it ricocheted off of his glove. By the way, another story. If you have, if there weren't fans there, Bucky, and you reached over the fence and brought it back and threw it in, 
it's still a live ball. Like, mm-hmm. it, like the, the ball needs to go over the fence and land. So this actually ricochets off his hand or his glove and another fan's hand, and that makes it interference, but it fell back into the field of play. It's not like it fell into the stands. The the point is, is the rule is so bad that I just I I can't overlook that portion of it. I'm glad they didn't follow the rules last night. I'm glad that they held up the replay because to me it's idiotic to have fans have any sort of play in it. And to your point, move them back five feet. You're the Houston Astros. You play in that ballpark 81 times a year. You're the one who's likely to get screwed by it the most. And they were last night. They were screwed by the rule. And you're right. Move them back. Move them back away from the field of play. And I understand we're at a time where everyone wants to have more access. It's all about fans having more access, bringing them closer to the game, letting them get a sense of what players are able to experience and feel when they're on the field of play. However, we've seen time and time again, when you bring them closer, things occur. We, we've seen this happen a couple of different times when we talk about fans and interaction and fan interference. But in a game that might have been the biggest game of the Houston Astros season, we saw a fan impact the outcome of the game because they were a little overzealous in reaching for a home run. And, and, and I don't... When you're sitting in those seats in the bleacher, it's difficult to turn away and duck. If you have a ball coming at you, you're going for it, right? You see four guys standing there trying to catch the ball. The one guy closes his eyes and is kind of like, I, I probably would turn away and duck. I don't want to break my hand trying to catch a, a fly ball. But that's the, the reaction is to try to catch the ball. So I don't even I don't even blame them. I, I I don't blame. I think that we would all have that sort of reaction. We even saw it a couple of nights ago on a foul ball. Uh, in the Brewers Dodgers series, where Christian Yelich went to try to make a sliding catch, and it was just one fan who reached over. There was mm-hmm. no fan interference called at that time, but all of a sudden you've got an arm that's leaning over in foul territory while running at a wall. It can be somewhat distracting. I just look at it like this: it's it's a bad, bad rule. Don't be mad at at, at the umpires last night for getting it right because that's how it should have been. It it it. it infuriates me to sit there and say, well, they didn't follow the rule when it's a bad rule. I I look at it in the NBA, and we were talking before the show. If a guy goes to the basket and is driving to the basket and just gets hammered on the arm and the ball flies out of bounds and they don't know who it was off of, I am totally fine with saying, we missed the call. We we missed the foul. We're just going to give it to the team. When you double down and say, not only did we miss the call, but because we missed the foul that went off of you, other team's possession – Two wrongs don't make a right. And I think that last night, Joe West, well, he didn't have the best angle. And while replay couldn't overturn it, which replay is a whole nother aspect in all of this, I just think it's an awful rule for Major League Baseball to have. And the Boston Red Sox, for everybody who's saying, yes, the, the baseball failed by not getting the rule right, good, because this would have been for the good of baseball. I just, there's so many instances, Bucky, where. We shouldn't follow what the, what the rules are because they're so ridiculous. And I think it I think it was a good move last night in Major League Baseball. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it was a good move because you had to have these kind of things happen to make people have these hard-line discussions. And so maybe out of all of this, we'll have a discussion. And maybe to what your suggestion was, maybe they will move the flans back a little bit, five feet, just so they're not able to impact the game, particularly yeah. when it's on the line and something that is a high-stakes invention. Put a row of flowers there. Put put something there to at least you, allow you the player. flowers. Yeah, Why yeah. I just I love gardening. I love you gardening. Want flowers. But, but how about, you want every place to look like Wrigley? <laughs> you want ivy on the walls? Uh, the, those weeds that they've got growing. Yeah, it would give some greenery. I think it would spice it up. Heck, remember Houston is also the team that had the little hill in center field with the yep. flagpole there. They took it out. It was gimmicky, but you do have fans sitting there, and they're not the only park to have fans right over the field, but. I, 
these things come with it. And if your team is going to be disadvantaged more because of it, or may, maybe they're that close because they're like, heck, if we just put it in there, they'll call, they won't be able to call interference and then we'll benefit by it. Major League Baseball got the rule right last night. And even though the rule was wrong, they got it right. Pile on Joel West all you want. They made the right move. Mookie Betts catches that ball and it should have been an out. Sorry, Houston. That's the way it is. Be sure to catch live editions of the Doug Gottlieb Show weekdays at noon Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Fox Sports Radio and the iHeartRadio app. He's a longtime NFL insider. Check him out on the Doomsday Podcast and follow him on Twitter at EdwarderRFA. Ed Werder joins us here on the Doug Gottlieb Show. Hey, Ed, how you doing today? I'm well. How are you guys? Uh, we are we are doing well. If you had to give John Elway an overall grade as President As a quarterback? The, yeah. <laughs> no, that would be way too easy. That would be way too easy. We're going we're gonna to crank it up a notch. As the president of the Denver Broncos, what kind of grade do you give John Elway? I'm going to give him a B uh, because he went to a Super Bowl, uh, won a Super Bowl as a uh, uh, director of football operations for the team he put together uh, the year that he went out and, and got a new defensive starter at you know, on the defensive line at linebacker uh, and in the secondary and won a Super Bowl with uh, Peyton Manning, even though Peyton was sort of at the end of his career and, and wasn't a dominant player anymore. Uh, so I'm going to give him that grade, uh, even though his recent drafts have not been very good and he still hasn't figured out the quarterback situation. You know, Ed, is that the biggest surprise that Elway, a great quarterback, a Hall of Fame quarterback, hasn't been able to find a quarterback, a franchise quarterback for the Denver Broncos? Yeah, it's it's kind of surprising in in that you know he should know what one looks like because he was one. But sometimes those guys, it seems like, who are so tremendously gifted um, and play a certain way, don't have the eye for a quarterback who might have a different build and a different set of uh, you know a different skill set than than they did. Um, but yeah, I mean, Elway, I have no qualms about how hard Elway works and the priority he would put on the quarterback position, and you know, he even brought. Gary Kubiak back in uh, this year after he had retired as the coach for health reasons, brought him back in in a personnel role so that he could help them evaluate the quarterback position. And then they they obviously went and signed a veteran um, who had played for Kubiak before in Case Keenum, who has not delivered like they expected. You know, he only had seven interceptions all of last year. They admired his, uh, you know, ball security. He already has eight picks, one in every game this year. Uh, so he's been a disappointment, and so it still appears that they don't have the quarterback position right, with, I think, the possible exception. I don't know how much you saw of Chad Kelly during training camp and preseason, but I thought he was awfully impressive, Jim Kelly's nephew. Has a great arm, uh, seemed to have a great command, uh, wasn't intimidated in the situations he got into games, and if they don't turn this around pretty soon, I wouldn't be surprised if Chad Kelly at some point starts getting uh, some, some game opportunities. Ed Werder joining us here on Fox Sports Radio. He's Bucky Brooks. I'm Dan Beyer in for Doug Gottlieb today on the Doug Gottlieb Show. About Chad Kelly, and maybe this is a bigger picture, not specifically about him, but he had to come in at the end of the first half because Case Keenum kind of got his bell rung and right. took a knee, and the and, and the fans gave him a standing ovation because he was coming out <laughs> on the field. Now, now that, that, that's, a, that's a much bigger story that we're talking about, now, and, and I guess that maybe goes to Vance Joseph. How much in trouble is Vance Joseph in Denver if fans are cheering the backup quarterback? Is that a Case Keenum thing? Is that a Vance Joseph thing, Ed? I think that uh, Vance Joseph is in as much trouble as any head coach could be in 
a year and a half into his tenure. Um, for this reason, they've lost four in a row. Uh, Elway was so dissatisfied with what happened last year that he privately considered making a coaching change even then and was uh, forbidden to do so by uh, Joe Ellis. I don't know if it was because uh, Joe didn't think it was fair to Vance Joseph. He didn't want to pay two head coaches or he didn't like whoever it was Elway was going to use as a replacement. Uh, but Elway said earlier this year uh, in, in, a, in a media interview that, you know, he wishes Gary Kubiak was still the head coach, which is not something you say or even think if you're satisfied with what you're getting from your current head coach. I mean, Vance Joseph's team is one and nine on the road uh, in the time that he's been the head coach. Only the Browns have a worse road record in that time. And I think the biggest indictment of him is what's happened to their defense. Uh, the last two weeks, they've given up over 200 yards rushing, 200 yards rushing in back-to-back games. The first time in NFL history that that's happened, and the second game was one in which he actually took over more of the play-calling responsibility for Joe Woods. So, uh, if the, if they can't go on the road and win this game against one of the worst offensive teams in football, starting a rookie quarterback, uh, then I wouldn't be surprised if Vance Joseph was the first head coach in the NFL fired. You know, um, when you think about what John Elway has been afforded, he's been afforded the opportunity to go through a number of quarterbacks. Um, if he fires Vance Joseph, this would be the fourth head coach that he potentially could hire. How long before we start looking at Elway for what has gone on in Denver, and when do the fans in Denver begin to question his ability to get the job done, even though the Super Bowl is still not too far in the distant rearview mirror? Yeah, I don't, you know, he has he has so much you know, football credibility built up for what he did as a player and the success he did have, uh, you know, rebuilding the Broncos and getting them back to the Super Bowl twice and winning one of the games. So uh, it's hard for me to imagine. And I lived there um, for a very long time, and I covered the Broncos uh, on a daily basis. And it's just hard for me to imagine the fans ever deciding that Elway was the problem and that Elway had to go. I think they'll always blame his coach and they'll always blame his quarterback. Edward are joining us here on Fox Sports Radio. Let's take a look around the, the rest of the NFL outside of tonight's Thursday night game. This may be story time, but it's Redskins-Cowboys week, okay? And this this used to be the rivalry. I, 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 don't, I don't think that it's there anymore. But are there any great Redskins-Cowboys stories from the past, Ed, if, if you've had of covering, covering that team and covering that rivalry? Well, I mean, uh, there used to be, like you said, it used to be the game of the year. Oh, yeah, mid eighties. Um, yeah, every every yeah. you know twice a year in the in the division. But given the the movement of players and and the absence of you know got, uh, personalities like you know George Allen and uh, Tom Landry and uh, you know there there's a famous story about Dyron Talbert throwing the you know funeral wreath in the Cowboys locker room <laughs> um, after after they beat Dallas. So. That, that kind of thing just doesn't really happen anymore. There's not sort of a natural hate anymore. The best we've done recently uh, is, you know, Josh Norman and, and Des Bryant talking bad about each other uh, in the lead-up to games and then the, the victor proclaiming himself that in the locker room afterwards. And even then they wound up doing a TV commercial together. So, uh, no, it's, it's not the same. Uh, that being said, it, it, it has a very it's a, a practical importance at the very least in that the Redskins lead the division by a half game over over the Cowboys and the Eagles at this point, and the, the Cowboys are a team that's still trying to you know get its first road win of the year, which I guess makes them one of ten teams that are in that predicament. So this is a big game for them just because they haven't been able to win back-to-back games. They haven't been able to win on the road. 
Um, and, and the Redskins seem like a team that they should be capable of handling if they're as good as they think they are. Do you think that's something that's missing in the NFL? Not that it would come back. I know mm. Bengals-Steelers don't like each other, and, and I think we saw that last week. But is that missing at all in the NFL, that rivalry aspect of, I, I hate's a strong word, but uh, of, of strong dislike, if you will? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, how many how many rivalries are, are you're the one you cited is really the only one that comes to mind right off the bat. Yeah. To me, I guess a few years ago when when the 49ers and and Seahawks were both good, you know, going to the Super Bowl out of that division, uh there was some rivalry between, you know, at least Crabtree and Richard Sherman that that seemed to engulf the entire teams, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Bears-Packers, Bears-Vikings, does does any of that really get anybody all that excited anymore? Uh, um, I think we're more fascinated by now the uh, intramural dynamics and rivalries that seem to have developed yeah. between, within teams. I mean, I, th- I, th- I think it's funny, but I, I can't let you go without talking about the Dallas Cowboys. A lot of the people that were catching heat in Dallas have been Dak Prescott 1, Scott Linehan 2, but yeah. last week against the Jacksonville Jaguars, they appeared to find a formula that could lead to success. It was all Ezekiel Elliott, Cole Beasley, and Dak Prescott touching the ball as many times as possible. Do you think the Cowboys have found a winning recipe on offense? Well, they kind of did the same thing against the Giants, with the exception that Cole Beasley was far more involved this past week against Jacksonville. Uh, just talking to one of the coaches you know, after that game, uh, the thing that they said they recognize now is that they, they have to have enough shots down the field built into the passing game uh, to prevent the defense from shrinking the field on them. Um, and, and they do feel like, despite the criticism that Dak Prescott has taken as a passer, that if they protect him, and they did against Jacksonville, uh, then he generally produces well with his arms and his mobility and that you know they think Cole Beasley is a tough matchup for a lot of a lot of defenses, and probably one of the few matchup players that they have that they can use to advantage. Uh, and that the rookie Michael Gallup, if they can get him involved in a big play or two early on, it seems to create an enthusiasm and a um, uh, a sense of aggression that they have at times lacked. And I think one of the reasons for the big disparity between the way this offense performs on the road and how it performs at home, which is they scored almost 29 points a game at home. And average 363 yards, and at at on the road they average 12.3 points and 275 yards. I think that Jason Garrett, by nature, is a very conservative guy, and he clings to the fact that when Dak Prescott does not throw an interception, the Cowboys are 20 and one, and so he goes into games believing that the primary goal has to be protecting the football at all costs, and I think they tend to get too conservative in those situations. It's also worth noting that the front office didn't do a great job in filling the wide receiver and tight end positions uh, for the passing game after you know the retirement of Jason Witten and the release of Des Bryant. That was a failure of the front office. But, uh, yeah, I think, I think they've, they did create the right offensive game plan, and the play calling was, was very good, and it was all centered around Dak Prescott. He ran 11 times, career high, uh, ran for uh, 84 yards, the most by a Cowboys quarterback since Roger Staubach in 1971. Uh, and I think they have to be willing to risk the quarterback like that. Now, the fact that they're not convinced that this is the right way to win, to me, is reflected in the fact that they don't have a backup quarterback who plays anything like Dak Prescott. Dak Prescott is not the kind of quarterback that Jason Garrett and the Cowboys have ever had before. You know, he's kind of a modern uh, option-type 
player who throws best on the move, not really a pocket guy, and that's the way Garrett's won. Garrett wants to play offense like the Cowboys did in their Super Bowl dynasty years of the early 90s, and yet they have this quarterback who's more of the revolution of quarterbacks that we've seen, a guy who can run uh, and throw and is best when he's able to do both. Would they have any interest in Amari Cooper if Cooper's available? I, I think for the right price they would have to have because he would be uh, the number one receiver on this team by a large margin. Um, and if you look at, at one of the things um, the Cowboys have failed to do was, like I mentioned, they didn't replace Des Bryant when they decided to release him uh, because he, his performance didn't justify his contract anymore. Uh, and then they didn't have the next guy in place when Jason Witten retired after 15 years. Um, so if, if you believe that Dak Prescott is a franchise quarterback like Jerry Jones and Stephen Jones continue to insist, then you have to do what the Rams did for Jared Goff, and you have to do what the Bears did for Mitch Trubisky, and what the Eagles have done for Carson Wentz, and you have to go all in and get the quarterback the kind of weapons necessary to sustain his success. And so, yeah, I think Amari Cooper would be a great fit uh, in the Cowboys system uh, if he were available at a reasonable price from the Raiders, which to me is a two or a three. Uh, you know, he's going to cost you $14 million under his contract next year, and the Cowboys were paying approximately that to Des Bryant before, and they, they shouldn't have big cap issues after this season. But, um, yeah, I think he's a player who would have to appeal to them at the right price. And I think one of the underrated stories coming out of Dallas has been the, uh, I guess, the solid play of their defense on the new defense. Well, he's not defense coordinator. He's the passing game coordinator. But for all intents and purposes, he's kind of the D coordinator, Chris Richard. Can you talk yeah. about his impact on the defense? Yeah, you know, he came in, he was fired by uh, – by Pete Carroll as a defensive coordinator up there. And as we know, the previous two defensive coordinators uh, had both gone on to become head coaches, Gus Bradley and Dan Quinn. Um, and Chris Richard did not obviously have that opportunity. And he came here to, to kind of run the passing game uh, and coach the secondary, which was the role that Matt Eberflus had before he left here uh, to go to Indianapolis as a defensive coordinator after last offseason. And, you know, Richard has been – uh, so impressive that Rod Marinelli has effectively allowed him to begin calling the defenses, uh, not just on third down, but on a more regular basis. And so I think that's why you see uh, more man-to-man in the secondary, um, uh, more uh, aggression at the line of scrimmage by the cornerbacks, more blitzing uh, in general. Uh, the thing they haven't really done until the last two games is create a lot of turnovers. They've had two in each of the last two games. They were the last team in the NFL to get an interception. Um, but that's sort of the direction it seems like Chris Richard wants to take this defense, uh, and he's been really impressive in that regard. And for all the people who would criticize Dallas for not drafting a wide receiver in the first round when they could have had Calvin Ridley or anybody else because no receiver had been drafted, they took uh, Leighton Vanderesh, uh, who has played well as a rookie, leads the team in tackles, which has never happened in Dallas. That, uh, and he probably won't finish the season that way because Sean Lee uh, has been out and, and should return soon. But Van Der Esch has earned playing time, even when Sean Lee's healthy. Uh, and they've got a good three-man rotation there at a position that you know they really couldn't win at anymore if they didn't have Sean Lee. So I think the defense is really the strength of this team, and it wasn't a surprise to me going into the season that for maybe the first time in 20 years, Dallas was in a position where they were going to have to be able to win games on defense because their offense was going to be a work in progress. Ed Werder, longtime NFL insider. Check out the Doomsday Podcast and find him on Twitter at RFA. We appreciate it, Ed. Enjoy Week 7. Thanks, guys. Be sure to catch live editions of the Doug Gottlieb Show weekdays at noon Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. Joining us now to talk about 
not only what happened in the NLCS, but what happened last night in Houston. Fox Sports and MLB Network baseball insider John Morosi joins us here on Fox Sports Radio. Hey, John, good to talk to you again. How you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, please, please excuse the noise of, uh, of kids' toys in the background. It's uh, kind of part of the commotion around here, but but all is well, my friend. Uh, How about for you guys? Things are things are great here, and and hey, for hungry hippos or whatever they want to play, we're all for it. <laughs> we are we are all for it. I want I want to add, obviously we're going to start with with last night's play and the review uh, in Houston on the Mookie Betts attempted catch and the out now by Jose Altuve that wasn't a home run. My here's here's my thought. I, I don't. The, the rule wasn't applied last night, but John, I think that was a good thing. I, I think it's an awful rule. Do you think it's a good rule or a bad rule in Major League Baseball the way that it's worded? Uh, I would like a little more precise wording on this, and, and here's how. I, I think that, and in practice, it's probably actually been done this way a lot of the time. That that you've got the top of the fence. I, I, I'll back up a little bit. There, there are two axes here that we're talking about. There's the up and down and then the top of the fence, right? The, the, the top of the fence moving laterally parallel to the ground and then parallel to the fence. Uh, to me, if, if, if the activity is happening above the top of the fence, that, that to me is, is the purview of the fans. And, and, and to expect fans to not have the very human instinct to grab for the baseball is, I think, it's unrealistic, and, and ballparks nowadays have the fans closer to the action than ever before, and to expect they're going to basically sit there on their hands and not and back away is, is I just think, not realistic and, and, frankly, not really all that fair to everybody involved there. So I, for me, I'd like to see it be a clearer distinction of if horizontally it is up above where the wall is, and certainly within reason you're not going to deliberately try to take the ball out of the, the outfielder's hand or, or, or interfere with them in a, in, a really, in a really negative way. I, I think that what all, all that happened last night was very accidental, and, and in my judgment, um, I, I think that there should have been a little more leeway given to the fans in that case. And, 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 and this is what Bucky and I talked about, and, and I argued this earlier, is that I just I don't see it in any other sport where a fan can have so much effect on a play, let alone any effect on a play. And that's that's my problem with it. I just think I think the rule stinks. I, I, I think move the fans back five feet, do something different. I just think to Mookie Betts was going to make that catch. Spectacular right. catch it was going to be. He was going to make that catch, and I just don't get why fans are so mad just because the rule wasn't applied because yeah, Houston may have gotten screwed last night, but Boston was going to get screwed by having a fan touch someone's glove. That's why I hate the rule. I just think it's well, it's awful. Well, it, it's a fair question to to point out all the different issues at play here. And, and here we have it in a high-profile game at a tense time of year, uh, a seminal moment, if you will, in the series, and, and this rule is, is helping to decide it. I, I think that moving the fans back, you, you've got a – a structure of the stadiums for so long now where where the, the movement for 20-plus years has been intricate designs, uniqueness, um, and having and having the fans as close as they can be. To back those fans up would involve a lot of money in, in renovations in many cases and also a lot of lost money in tickets because those are tickets that people want. So it's, I, I, I'm always hesitant to change too much about uh, the, the structure of things as a result of one play or, or even just one one poorly uh, written rule, I suppose. Uh, I, I, I'll say this. I think it's, it's a difficult ask 
um, of, of the umpires to have them make that call when even if, if Joe West is perfectly positioned, he is many, many feet away and behind the, uh, looking at the play uh, uh, against the plane of what actually he needs to look at to make that judgment. You're asking him to make a 3D judgment in like a 2D position. And it's almost, it's, it's a guess is what it is. It's a guess because you cannot really tell depth perception-wise, was his hand over the, over the imaginary yellow line or not. I mean, it's, it's literally impossible to tell. We had slow-mo replays on that and looking at it for a long time. I personally think that Mookie had reached into the crowd at that last moment when, when, the, when, uh, when all the contact occurred, but I don't know that. And, and, that's, and of course, uh, ironically enough, it was an Astros employee positioned in an unideal way that blocked the definitive camera angle, and of course it was an Astros employee stationed where he was not supposed to be earlier in the series that became such a big topic <laughs> earlier in the day. So everything, as you see, uh, comes full circle. Uh, one of the things that I noticed in the Milwaukee Brewers-LA Dodgers series, Craig Council had a little bit of gamesmanship. He started Wade Miley, but pulled him after five pitches, tried to kind of induce the Dodgers in going more of a right-handed lineup, what do you think about the gamesmanship that Council displayed during that moment? Well, Bucky, to me, a couple of things. I mean, number one, there, there's no hard and fast rule in, in baseball about at what point in time do you need to let your opposition know what your lineup is going to be until you actually have the exchange of lineup cards at home plate. So there is a bit of a discussion now among league officials about maybe changing that system a little bit and, and finding a way to... Uh, make more of a standardized time at which you, you declare your starting pitcher. That being said, Bucky, there's no rule that says you can't make a change one batter into the game. And, in fact, the Dodgers had made uh, their lineup, I believe, in accordance with that general idea that they were going to probably have a quick hook on Wade Miley. So, to me, the Brewers are, are operating at a disadvantage here. They've got a, their, their payroll is half of what the Dodgers is. Uh, and so when you're in that situation, I've got no problem whatsoever with having to manage things a little bit uniquely. The Brewers have done that, and I think they're, they're managing this pitching staff in a way that suggests they, are, they know they are somewhat outmanned in this particular series. John Morosi joining us here on Fox Sports Radio on the Doug Gottlieb Show. He's Bucky Brooks. I'm Dan Byer in for Doug. Did Milwaukee miss their chance in the series? Uh, maybe. I, I think that in, in, in general, I think the Brewers, they probably had a, a pretty good chance to really seize command of the series, uh, whether it was yesterday or even in, in Game 4. Uh, to me, the, the more talented team here, Dan, is, is the Dodgers. I think that they've, they've shown that over a period of time. And, and I, I would say that the, the, the Brewers missed their best opportunity, but they still got, have a shot. They're still going home, and, and they've got Wade Miley, the guy they thought they were going to start game five, starting game six. So I think that yeah. all, all things considered, they're probably feeling pretty good about their chances going back home to Miller Park. Yeah, I will say that. I, just, I look at it like, and you could say Milwaukee maybe should have won three out of the, the first four games or four, whatever the case is. The Dodgers weren't the Dodgers. In in those for I mean atrocious at the plate. Another bullpen came through. That's where I just wonder. And I thought last last night with the whole Miley stuff, the Miley decision wasn't even a big part of it. Um, not walking Austin Burns with Puig maybe pinch hitting for Clayton Kershaw on deck. There was a lot with Milwaukee that I thought maybe 
maybe yesterday just kind of caught up to them, and, and that maybe well, the Dodgers finally caught up to them. Yesterday. Yeah, and, and and I also think too. I mean, let's be clear too that the it's not as though the the Dodgers have already hit all that well in this series. They've been okay, and, and I think it's been a matter of just to string it together at the right time for them. Meanwhile, the Brewers, I, I think we're seeing one of those classic cases, Dan, of you sweep a series, you're feeling really good about yourself, and then you sit for about four days. And and Yelich hasn't been himself, uh, really. And even Kane hasn't been himself. That even goes back to the first round. And so if you're going to look at those those two guys and say, if, if you're the play against the Dodgers, um, and, and Yelich and Kane aren't really hitting, and you're relying on Orlando Arcia for your offense, uh, it's going to be a tough series, in my opinion, to win. If it's the their season or if it's the playoffs as well. Game six of the NLCS tomorrow. You'll see it on Fox Sports 1. Brewers and Dodgers in Milwaukee, and of course, a game five tonight. Um, does Houston bounce back just uh, with tonight? You or your child can answer, John. Doesn't matter. Yeah, that's my 10 month old Lulu who's got a pretty strong opinion on this. Uh, I would say uh, Lulu believes, and I tend to concur, that, uh, that Verlander finds a way to win this game. I, I've, I've seen it before with him. Uh, this even goes back to a similar situation, actually, in. Goodness, seven years ago, I feel old now, uh, 2011, uh, Tigers facing a 3-1 series deficit at home. Verlander with a masterpiece to force the game back, force the series back to Texas for game six. So I think a similar situation uh, that Verlander finds a way to get it done against his former teammate in Detroit, David Price. And then uh, I think Lulu probably thinks, though, that Boston finds a way to win it there in six or seven. Yeah, I think Lulu and I agree that it's not a bad thing that Chris Hale isn't pitching tonight and should be available in Boston. Come on, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks, John. Do your thing. MTV's official challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A A podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at First first Listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA 
DNA with Hannah Storm chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.